So, thanks for coming. I'm going to talk to you about this, the Better Evidence for Better Healthcare Manifesto, and uh, why we need it, why it's so important, and why we're doing it in the centre, and how it might relate to you, and how you might contribute. So, I'm going to take you back to an article in 1994 that I think you should all read. It's an editorial by a chap called Doug Altman, who's a professor of medical statistics here, and runs something called the Centre for Statistics in Medicine. And if you remember Altman and Blandpots, you might have heard of that name, cited about 10,000 times. Well, he wrote an, an editorial called The Scandal of Poor Medical Research. And he said in that article there are huge shortcomings in the way that evidence-based medicine operates today. And that's in 1994. Too much research, too much poor quality research, and too much research done for the wrong reasons. Added to that, a few years ago, uh, in 2014, a professor who was at, in London at the time, who's now here, Trish Greenall, had a meeting here in Oxford, a two-day meeting, to basically say that evidence-based medicine is a movement in crisis, and there's been a long history of people trying to fix these problems, and it's presenting more problems and solutions for practice. And then just recently with a colleague of mine, Ben Goldacre, we wrote uh, an editorial in the BMJ again. So you see there's a theme in the BMJ about how medicine is broken and how we can fix it. And the important issue is now is that patients and the public are increasingly aware of the shortcomings. So it's about time we did something about it. Okay, so while I'm speaking, if you want to go online, you can go online to evidencelive.org and type in manifesto or type that into Google and you can read the manifesto if any of you are online at the moment and have a look while I'm talking. So wherever I've been, I sort of say, you've got to start somewhere. Why do you get to a point that we need better evidence? What's your story? Why am I here? What was the seminal moment when I went, oh, there's a real problem? So I'm just going to talk you through one area where we've worked which is in uh, Tamiflu, is an antiviral drug, which you may be aware of or not. And in the 2009 pandemic, remember when we were all going to die? So you shouldn't be here, some of you, that we were giving out antivirals as a public health measure on a telephone call here in the UK. I'm a GP myself. And we had a situation where you would ring up if you had a temperature or one of your children had a temperature, and then they would send you off to a phone, a phone call to go and pick up some antivirals and take them. And that was the point when my sister asked me, do these make any difference? And at that point, I was like, hmm, I'm uncertain, not sure. So one of the basic principles of evidence-based medicine is to reduce uncertainty, to use evidence to make better decisions, reduce uncertainty. And in 2009, we did a systematic review, but we also worked with Tom Jefferson, who's a colleague of mine, to try and find the evidence to answer and reduce uncertainty. And what we did is come up under significant barriers. And one of the things at the time is, in one of the Cochrane reviews, is if you ever do a Cochrane review and publish a Cochrane review, if somebody puts a comment on that review, you have six months to respond to that comment. And this is a Japanese clinician called Hayashi, who sent a, a, a question in saying, I want to question that you use 10 trials to inform the systematic review, and of them 10 trials, only two had ever been published, and eight weren't. How did you not uh, question that? And of the eight that weren't published, of the, sorry, of the two that were published, 
there was no significant difference. And of the ones that were unpublished, there was a significant difference. How did you come to that conclusion? Why didn't you investigate where that evidence was? And that was based on this review that was published in 2003 in Archives of Internal Medicine. And that said it ulcerative treatment reduced lower respiratory tract complications and antibiotic use and hospitalization in both healthy and at-risk adults. And in there were the 10 trials published and what happened is the Cochrane Review had taken some of what we used to do was take the abstracts, the non-published, and then just reproduce them in the Cochrane Review. And here's an example of one of these abstracts. But what we did is try to ask for the evidence. So here's an example of one of the abstracts. This is the abstract of the largest ever published, uh, uh, largest ever trial of 1,459 patients published as an abstract 300 words. When we asked the person who had their name on that review, John Trenner, he was published in a meeting, a conference, he said that he didn't actually participate in study M76001 and doesn't remember presenting it at the meeting. So the largest ever trial, the person who's got their name on the conference proceeding wasn't at the meeting, doesn't remember participating in the trial, and doesn't know anything about it. That sets alarm bells off, doesn't it? And we had the media involved, because at first we were being stonewalled, and then trying to get the information required us to involve the media. We asked one of the chaps who was involved in one of the published trials, where's the data? And he said, well, unfortunately, I only, I only saw the summary data all of that you would have to ask Roche because they conducted the trial and only looked at the summary results. So even the published data, we were worried about who's got access to data, who's really doing these trials. All of this looked really odd. Issues of conflict of interest, ghost authorship, how do you access the data? And that meant 60% of the data was never published for a drug that we were stockpiling and using in a public health emergency. And this is a really helpful slide. What it illustrates is, they call it, the FDA call it above the waterline and below the waterline. And above the waterline is you see journal articles and conference proceedings and very small summaries of what really is out there. And for any trial below the line is all this other, other information, completed case report forms, patient-level data sets, clinical study reports. These are documents that are submitted to regulators as part of the regulatory proceedings. Yet what we rely on is only these small snippets of information to make huge decisions in healthcare. And suddenly when I realised this, and we realised this, we went, this can't be right. And what happened in 2013 was that Roche agreed to release all of the trial data sets. And that was an important uh, statement. Largely as well because of a publication of a book called Bad Pharma at the time, which basically said there's a lot of bad practices. And if you haven't read that book, buy a copy, read it. There's some really interesting issues about what we define by bad trials, all the fundamental problems. So let's come back. When they release the other day, so you read a lot about confidentiality, patient confidentiality, and the problems that presents. And pharmaceutical industry and entities will always say to you, 
well, actually, we can't do this for commercial confidentiality reasons. Yet, Roche and GSK just posted the CDs to me in a package. And I got them in the post. It wasn't even recorded delivery. It was a really odd sensation to say we've got all these issues. But this, remember M7601? That's the largest ever treatment trial. That was all that was ever published in, in, a, in an abstract. This is the actual clinical study report that underpins M76001. So, would you rely on that, 300 words, or would you rely on that for the information about all the benefits and all the harms? And it's 9,809 pages, so you can see there's a huge difference between what we currently see and what might be available for drug treatment. Now, interestingly, what did that lead to? Um, that led us to say it doesn't reduce hospital complications because we've got all the full benefits and all the harms. It doesn't reduce antibiotic use. It doesn't reduce lower respiratory tract complications. It does still reduce your symptoms because it has an antipyretic effect, but it increases some adverse events that are important, like renal failure, psychiatric adverse events, and so on. So uh, I, as a clinician, haven't prescribed this drug yet. I don't see the evidence is there for me to prescribe it. There are still some unanswered questions, like in people on ITU or in hospital, but in primary care, the evidence is it's of limited benefit, if any, and the adverse event outweigh the benefits. Yet we still stockpile this drug. And when I went to the government to present this and at the Parliamentary Select Committee, we still spent another £50 million stockpiling it the month after because it was going out of date. So there's a huge issue about how we make decisions. So when anybody says to me, we haven't got enough money in healthcare, I just say I can't believe there isn't enough money. £473 million on stockpiling a drug. And what would happen if we had more money available in healthcare? We'd probably stockpile more useless treatments just in case scenario. Um, the reason that's there is because influenza is on the government risk register. So it's, it's on the same level as climate change. So we have to have a risk register and a risk mitigation plan. And that's part of it. Tamiflu is our risk mitigation plan. Not hand washing, where there's a bit of good evidence, is that's our plan. So thinking about that, and is how does that think? So if you go on the site, you see why we need better evidence. So my first thing to say, you can see 20 reasons that underpin, at least 20, the need for better evidence for better healthcare. And I can, these are structural systemic problems that have existed in evidence-based medicine for the last 20 or 30 years. And so if I take a drug like what I showed you, neuraminidase inhibitors, like I'll sell Tamivir, Tamiflu, Zanamivir, Relenza, and I say, how many problems do the trials exhibit? So if I just take them 20 problems as I go through them, I can say that they suffered with poor p publication bias, they had poor quality research, they had research that was more likely to be false and true, reporting bias, they certainly had that, ghost authorship, they had financial and non-financial conflicts of interest, they had under-reporting of harms. If you look at journal publications compared to clinical study reports, there's about an 80% difference in reporting of harms. They certainly have a lack of shared decision-making strategies. You ring up, say, yes, you've got a fever, take Tamiflu. Where's the shared decision-making in that? Trials lacking external validity. Who do they apply to? Regulatory failings, certainly. Surrogate outcomes, definitely. Unmanageable volume of evidence. How can you look at 160,000 pages of evidence? 
Get clinical guidelines like public health, England, no understanding of the evidence and prohibitive costs of doing the actual trials and they certainly give us too much medicine. So you can see 500 million pounds worth, if people have understand the limitations of evidence and the problems that existed, we might have come to different decisions and said we won't stockpile this and we'll save that 500 million for something else. So it's not that people don't want to, clinicians don't want to practice evidence-based medicine, it's actually very difficult for them if trials exhibit all of these problems. So somehow we've got to fix this if we want people to use evidence better. And if we don't fix some of these problems, we'll still be in a problem where there's a huge amount of evidence in front of people, and it's very difficult, and it's getting harder in my mind, not easier, to tell the good evidence from the bad evidence. Because if we go back to Doug Altman's time, there's been a huge increase in research, and there's more so than ever. So, that's where we start off, is the growth and volume of evidence has been accompanied by corrosion in the quality of evidence, which has compromised medicine's ability to provide affordable, effective, high-value care. Healthcare is, a, is, a, is one of the, is, is the fastest growing business in the world. In some parts of the world, like America, it's 20% of the, of the GDP. So if you wanted to create a new business tomorrow, would you go into healthcare? Or would you go into making cars where it's actually a smaller GDP proportion? And what I see people, business people in healthcare is, do you know what they think? They think it should be more than 20% of GDP. There's more to go for. We can make money out of healthcare. Now, it is a great driver of the economy, but actually that corrosion and uncertainty helps businesses thrive when we want to reel back and say, hey, hold on a minute, we need to develop an evidence base, a high quality evidence base. And there are many examples of this. I could spend the next day giving you huge examples. And in any field, wherever I go, people can give me examples. But here's another example, Vioxx trials. When I first qualified, going back and in 2001, the fact that evidence was withheld from regulators for a drug that was a global blockbuster, and that simple people who would have understand the difference between intention to treat and per protocol analysis could have come to a completely different understanding. In that what they did is submit to the FDA only the on-treatment analysis. So if you'd stopped the treatment because you had a heart attack, you were removed from the information sent to the regulator. So it was two years later before somebody clicked and went, oh, there's a problem here. There's something being withheld in the analysis. Here's another classic example. 329, study 329. It's got its own Wikipedia page. So go and have a read of the study 329. Everybody should know about this example. Again, paroxetine marketed to adolescents. Information withheld on important suicidal behaviour in adolescents. Meant that a number of people, a, a drug that sold billions, could actually have been stopped if people had used better quality evidence. Huge structural problems. And then here's another example that... The flip side is, I've worked with organisations, when you try to fix things, all trials try to fix things, and I'm going to come back to that. Just one specific thing, we want all trials registered and reported in full. Very simple statement. That's a commitment. All trials should be registered and should be reported in full. Doesn't seem that nonsensical, but when you realise half of all trials never report, and never registered and report in full, that half the information is missing. Now imagine if um, you were the airline industry, 
and you were in the business like British Airways of buying planes and they said, we're not going to give you half the information about this plane. So if it drops out of the sky, it's because we're not going to tell you the things that have gone wrong. We just would not accept that. So when we purchase a medicine, are we both purchasing the chemical compound or are we purchasing all of the evidence that it's built on? And at the moment, that seems a ridiculous scenario that actually we can say, but we can hide half of that and we can do that no problem. But what it taught me is to fix things, it takes a lot of groups of people to work together. And then here's an, an example recently. Um, Zarelto. Zarelto is a drug called Rivaroxaban, which is designed to reduce your risk of thrombosis in people with risk of, of thrombosis, like with atrial fibrillation or risk of having a deep vein thrombosis. But here's it's in the secondary prevention after an acute coronary syndrome. And here the European Union approves the Relto, a river oxabend, for secondary prevention of acute coronary syndrome. So that's the European Medicines Agency, European Union approves its use. However, in America, the regulatory position is to say, we're actually going to vote against the same drug for acute coronary syndrome. So how can you have a system, global system, where the two major regulators come to completely opposite conclusions about the evidence in front of them? One of them saying, well, we've got like a few papers in front of them, looks quite nice, we'll trust it. And the other one is going, uh-oh, we see some of the issues that are emerging in the evidence base. We understand the problems of missing data. Because we've been here before, haven't we? And I just look at this and think, That's, this is ridiculous. This could be an amazing treatment. However, it's equally likely it's not an amazing and it's a harmful treatment. We need to reduce that uncertainty. How can we have two European agents in FDA coming to opposite conclusions and thinking we've got a legitimate regulatory system and they're looking at the same bits of evidence? Seems absolute nonsense to me. But that's the problem because we've got an issue with the evidence. And that's why we end up writing all sorts of editorials all the time about the same issue. There's too much uncertainty to make a decision. Could we reduce the uncertainty? One of the things we said is it was 2010 when these drugs became available. First off, we could have run our own independent trial in the meantime, which would have been far less money than what we've already spent on the drugs, and come to our own independent conclusion, getting rid of all the problems that exist in the evidence, but we don't want to do that. So we have a problem of replication and independent replication. And that's what we're saying here. Independent scrutiny of key trial data. Everybody involved in the trials has a commercial conflict of interest. How would we expect them to come to an independent position? Because we just know then, even if you want to act in the best well of the world, you're not going to be able to do that if you have a financial tie. And then we have a world where what we keep saying to everybody is we should be informing the public. We should be sharing decisions. We should work clinicians and patients together. And then I have clinicians who work with me saying, so Carl, what can we do to, to operationalize this tomorrow? Where are the tools that are going to help us do this? And I say to them, well, actually, if you go and look at the evidence, there's Actually, this is an area where there's so little research 
it's impossible to inform anybody about what you might do, how you might go about it. There are no tools that can help us when you say to somebody, how might you help somebody with cardiovascular risk make a better decision about whether to take treatment or not? And it's a really difficult area to operationalize in and work in. But I can tell you that the funders and people are not taking it serious. And then finally, we get invited into areas to work with people when we see there's huge problems. And we worked with Panorama BBC before Christmas to look at the evidence for IVF treatments and add-on success. And it astounds me that you go to an area like this and we say the most patient-relevant outcome here has to be live birth. And all of the people in this field go, no, that's not the important outcome. And we're like, well, what is it? They're going, oh, no, no, you need to come back, you need to come back, and you need to do something like that's a surrogate or maybe the six-week pregnancy implantation rate. And we're just like, no, that cannot be this. And they say, well, it's too difficult to measure that. And we're going, how can it be difficult to measure live birth or not? Surely that's what you want to know when you're deciding to have some additional treatment that could cost you up to seven to £10,000 extra because this is outside of the NHS. And this is the best world if you want to look at what would the NHS look like in a private sector. You'd have this mishmash of some treatments we'd offer you and then others we'd, we'd operate in a world of uncertainty where we'd go, we're not quite sure, but we think it's a good idea and give us 5,000 and we'll let you know and you'll find out. And people spend up to 60 to 70,000 extra in this. And all we said is very clearly is, actually there were 42 different treatments available that you could be offered in IVF beyond standard treatment. Of them 42, only three had some form of evidence where we would say they show some benefit of improvement. That was in Cochrane Reviews. However, that evidence in them three was limited by real issues that needed, meant they needed larger, bigger trials. So to be honest, there was zero that we would recommend, above and beyond the sort of placebo effect that you might get from participating. The key to that, some of them were actually harmful. And we couldn't understand why they were still available and being offered. But in a private world, they were. But what it taught us that there are huge issues across all different sectors. Wherever you are, there are issues in the quality of evidence, which is probably not that ridiculous, to be honest, because you can think we've only about 25 years into the idea of high-quality developing evidence, and we're only at the beginning of the journey of evidence-based medicine. Um, and while this has been going on, not least, uh, the Academy of Medical Sciences has launched a new project on evaluating evidence. So there are other people coming to the fore, and not least, Sally Davis, who's the CMO, some of you may be aware, Professor Dame Sally Davis. There seems to be a view that doctors over-medicate so it is difficult to trust them, and that clinical scientists are all beset by conflicts of interest from industry funding and are therefore untrustworthy too. And she picked out one of our favourite treatments in the world to say this is offering us huge problems in understanding evidence. Because what they don't want to do is be putting out a policy where some people are going, hold on a minute, there's a problem with the evidence. There's a problem with the evidence. They don't like it. We need an authoritative independent report looking at how society should judge the safety and efficacy of drugs as an intervention. How can anybody come up with an authoritative independent report? That's a really bold statement, isn't it? By very nature in a shared decision-making world, nothing can be authoritative. 
when we're operating in a world of, of uncertainty. So that's how we ended up with that sort of editorial. How can we, how can we go from this, because we wrote this in response to that, how can we fix it, not just say, okay, we're going to do more of the same. And what I realised when we were doing that, often what we were pointing out is we want to reduce a lot of the biases. That's what we're really talking about. There's so much bias out there, how do we reduce bias? It was interesting, last week I was talking about this from wherever I go, and I thought I'd leave this in, and I was this couple of slides. I was at the Centre for Evidence-Based Dermatology in Nottingham, and we have the director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine in, in, in Nottingham here, so two goes in one week. And uh, there's a chap there, Hal Williams. I don't know if you've ever met Hal Williams. He's now uh, also not only head of the Centre for Evidence-Based Dermatology, he's head of the NRHR HTA programme, not the, H the trials programme. So a uh, really influential person, knows a lot about evidence, a lot about the problems in evidence, and also is really interested and we had a lively discussion about some of the fixes. But when I went there, I picked out this article, so I, he wasn't aware, but he was in the audience, so I said, look, I'm here today, and I said, look, strengths and limitations of evidence-based dermatology, and look what he was saying. Evidence-based dermatology can have its li limitations. For example, mindless pooling together of data are still susceptible to some degree of dishonesty and bias. But in its article, he makes this point. It is possible those with a vested interest to twist the methods and conclusion of a systematic review to their own advantage. One could conveniently fail to include one crucial study, for instance, or not publish a study, as I've showed you. Unpublished data in a way that favours a particular product. And I like this. Readers need to develop a good nose for what constitutes a good systematic review in a clinical trial. So you all need to, so when you're teaching tomorrow on the MSC, you have to be talking about, do you have a good nose or not? What does that mean? That's ridiculous. And so what we have to do is to base our decisions, our most important policy decisions, right now, because whether you've got a good nose, and he's right, because you have to be able to detect the subtleties, the biases, the problems that exist. And if you're not aware of them, or you don't understand them, or you're conflicted in some way, you can easily dismiss them and come to an alternative viewpoint. If you dismiss all the biases, Dismiss the poor quality outcomes. You can still come to an answer that says, oh, we should use this treatment. Why not? The problem is we can't afford to do that anymore, can we? We just have not got enough money in the pot. Can we invest 2.5 billion in health services extra tomorrow and of that spend another 50 million on Tamiflu? Is that what we should do? Or should we stop and go, actually, let's work out what's worth investing in and what's not? So, we've tried to fix some things, and uh, when we've tried to fix some things, it's been fun, but actually it's provoked a lot of thought in our unit and, and trying to think, what do we do? So, um, I'm going to talk to you about clinical outcomes fail to translate into benefit for patients. We published this article last week on Monday, so it's available in trials, so you can go and read it. It's freely and open access. But one of them is, we think there's a huge problem in outcomes. And if you go to outcomes, here's how when I'm brainstorming, I use the latest technology to brainstorm. And as you can see, it's, it's like it's 
downloadable on the iPhone is post-it notes and a large post-it note that sticks on your wall and you put them on the wall and you think what does that look like and then you think oh inappropriately reported selectively reported poorly chosen there's editing you see that's how you edit work and then you end up with a nice little diagram like this that's in the report that's what it looks like and I'm going to talk to you one thing about there just switched outcomes so we think there are all these problems look there are, there are 15 problems, I think, 9, 11, 12, 13, 14, 16 problems in the design, badly chosen outcomes, badly collected, selectively reported, and inappropriately interpreted. And you can pick any one of them and say, we need to optimise them, we need to improve what we're doing. And if we don't do that, that's why you have so many trials, 35,000 a year, and so many of them don't improve outcomes. So, Compare is a project led by Ben Goldacre and a group of medical students and a couple of us in the centre. So there's been a long history of reporting that there's a problem between what people pre-specify at the outset of a trial and what they report at the end of the trial. Because if you go to the members of the general public and take anybody aside who knows nothing about research and being in a university and academic setting, they think it's absolutely obvious that you should say, this is what I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to measure it, and then you should report that. And if you change from that, they go, well, isn't that like cheating? And that's what they consider it, cheating. They don't say it's like all slightly. And what's been shown over time is that there's been a systematic review of 27 cohorts that about a third of trials have discrepancies between pre-specified and reported primary outcomes. And 13% of trials introduce non-pre-specified, so they add something brand new in. And somebody said to me, it's a bit like if you were putting a bet on a horse and you could put your bet on after the horse, the, the sort of, the race had finished, wouldn't you? And if you could do that, we'd all be very rich and we wouldn't be stood here, would we? So imagine like the Grand National and you go at the end and go, no, can I have my bet now, please? I want to put it on that. And you go, oh, there's your £10,000. So he said it's obvious. So we, we work out in things like other arenas that actually pre-specified means there's a timestamp when you put your time on your betting slip and it has to come in before the race starts. As soon as the race is started, all bets are off. And that's what should happen in research. But it doesn't, as I've showed you. third of the time you can sort of say, oh, I didn't pay my money or I'm going to have a new winner. So what did we do? We did all the top five medical journals over six weeks and we checked the pre-specified versus reported outcomes. But what we also did differently, instead of doing repeating the 27 studies that had already the problem, we said we're going to try and fix it. So we're going to send an email to the journal, which is actually really difficult to do. Because the first thing you realise is they have rules. Like you've only got so many words. 250 words for one, 300 for the other, 400 for the other. Some are only two weeks, three weeks and four weeks. But if you don't, day 15, you can't submit a response. Even if there's a glaring error, you're out of time. So you've got to get your act together. You've also got to be right, haven't you? So we had a system where two students would do it independently and then a clinician would check it. That's quite a lot of work, actually, in a short period of time. So we had to be organised. And this is what we did. This is what we found. We checked 67 trials. Nine were perfect. As many outcomes were not reported as were silently added, which was shocking to us. We sent 58 letters, 18 were published, and after four weeks, eight letters were unpublished, and 32 were rejected outright by the editors. So the idea that science is correcting and self-corrects itself is automatically ridiculed by this. 
So this is what the different journals did. Here's the BMJ. You can read online, you can go online and access. So when we were talking about it, we said all the results here, freely available. You can look at all our data sheets. You can read them online. So interestingly, uh, they publish all their letters within 24 hours, which is good. Um, and here's one, Henry Drysdale, and it had a correction. But interestingly, for another letter, as you can see, which includes my name, with Henry Drysdale, there was no correction. So you've got journals operating in this really odd way. And in fact, I, was, I presented this at the BMJ editors meeting where there were all the editors from the big journals in the room. And I said, what the hell's going on? This is supposed to be the scientific record and you seemingly make it up as you go. You're the bastions of top five journals. People believe these are the upholders of the scientific record. The good thing is, uh, recently, but it's ridiculous, I've had to have a back and forth conversation to show this in public to the journal of the editor-in-chief, who was so embarrassed that they actually had to now say to me, come to us and say, can you send us this, we'll sort it. But it got to that level to sort. The Lancet. Um, they published the letters uh, up to 180 days it took. So it's ridiculously long time. By then, people have forgot what the trial was. They would put publish an awful reply, but there'd be no correction, no response in the record. JAMA uh, rejected all letters. They said they were too vague and there were repetition between letters. That's because we only had 250 words and you can imagine, you need to be very specific about where you insert the primary outcome. So we would have exactly the same and say, the primary outcome measure was reported correct, yes, no. Secondary outcomes, there were seven, of which five were incorrect, two weren't. Um, again, we're trying to embarrass JAMA into sorting this out, but it's ridiculous that they said, we have outcome switching as a problem, and we're doing nothing about it. Annals of Internal Medicine... They published some letters, didn't publish others. They did all sorts of things, published a 1,000 editorial, trashing our methods without letting us respond to that. And uh, we keep going back and forward, but we know they've changed their policy. But they don't want to admit why. But they have changed their policy. But one thing they say is this. We rely primarily on the protocol details about pre-specified primary and secondary outcome. What they did is go to town and say, your methods are wrong, because we rely on the protocol. And what we said is, we will use the protocol if it's dated pre-specified. But if it's published two years after the event, which often happens, a month before the trial's finished, and there's no date on it or timestamp, how are you supposed to call that pre-specified? And they tried to say, no, the protocol is the document, and we said, yes, I understand that. But if you understand good clinical practice, every protocol should have a version number on it with version control and a timestamp. Yet if you go to Annals and look in there, they've got no version control, no protocol, no dates on them. So somebody could have wrote it a week before and make it out as though this is the pre-specified outcome. We said that's utterly nonsense. And anybody who's been trained in GCP would know that. And it doesn't make sense because every document I've been involved in a trial has a timestamp on it and a version on it. This is version 1.9. And all we're saying is if you've made a change, 
then you highlight that in the protocol. We would have then accepted it. If you say this is two years after, there's been no changes since the exception version one, we would accept it, but that's not the case. But look, so we went looking for their protocols as well. We're available for none of the annals trials. And even more work we're in is statements like this. Reproducible research study. Dr. Everson, uh, we wrote to Dr. Everson and it said, this is what we've got. A study protocol available from Dr. Everson, statistical code and data set not available. Okay, but he said that's what he said. When we emailed him, this is his response. Um, that's not what that says, is it? Isn't that outrageous? So if you go back, I don't say we rely on the protocol. You ask somebody for the protocol and they say you have to sign a commercial confidentiality agreement. This sort of stuff is just outrageous. Then we said, can we trust the evidence base? So, New England Journal of Medicine, one of my favourite journals in the, in the world. How can space constraint not allow for all outcomes to be reported? And any interested reader can compare the published article, the trial registration and the protocol with the reported results to review discrepancies. That is impossible. Their editors can't do it because they don't know how to do it. We've just shown you can't get the protocols. For some trials, it took us up to four hours to do it well. Because some of the results are in the discussion. And when you go checking it, we're astonished to go, what is the secondary outcome or the primary outcome we're doing in the discussion? Why is this so? So they'll do things like, they'll try and say, we reported the primary outcome co correctly. And we go, but you had seven time points. You reported seven, so they might be say, the protocol might say, we're going to report HbA1c at six weeks, and then all of a sudden they introduce 6, 12, 18, 24, 30. And anybody will know what happens when you do multiple outcomes. The potential for inference of that effect for the multiplicity argument, that you've got too many outcomes, by chance alone one of them will be positive. That's the type of stuff you see. But this is not possible. And it, they are editors. So if I, any interested editor cannot compare the published article the register in the protocol. Takes too long and it needs three of you at the moment. We're saying, look, why can't you just have a summary table? Primary, secondary, exploratory outcomes, anything changed since inception in the footnote, we'd all be able to do it really easy. Okay, so there's a journey of problems. Here's a journey into the manifesto. So we've got, I've got to a part where as a group of us, We've been doing things like evidence line for a long time. We've been teaching a long time about what do we mean by high quality evidence? How do we get there? And we've thought that actually we now need to provide commitments, that these commitments are statements that we put together that people then say, I'm prepared to put an action to. I'm going to try and do something about one or as an organization, three, four, five. And then look like, so if you go on the manifesto, is we're trying to facilitate, so it's for everybody, it's not just a few people, to improve the quality of healthcare. And so here's the 16 actions right now, the manifesto commitments. You see they're all verbs, so they're all about doing something. And you can pick any one, so these have sort of grown from a small number to a larger number of us spoke to people, they may collapse again, I'm not sure where they'll end up, but the idea of having commitments is that if you commit to one thing, like I'm going to eradicate publication bias, you then have to say, well, who are the people to work with? Who are the actions? So we are committed. So when I've done this, I, as an organization in CBM, 
we're probably doing too many. I think we're involved in about eight things. We're really interested in growing the generation of leaders in evidence-based methods and cultivating skills. skills. We are interested in reducing unwarranted variation and overdiagnosis and unnecessary medicalization. We do do this. I've talked to you a bit about these two and we're interested in these two, but we can't cover everything. And it might be too many, maybe too many things. And now I'm interested in how do we put these into, an, into a way that actually communicates to groups like yourself or other people. Oh, yeah, we should be doing something about this. So if I take something like eradicate publication bias, that's probably one of the things we're best in. We've developed all trials. We've wrote about it. We're working with the World Health Organization to reduce, to Im improve the reporting of trials globally. So increase the number of countries that register trials, because that's one of the easiest fixes to do. And we're trying to get an action plan for all countries to sign up to, tri to register trials. We've developed a trials tracker that says online you can look at how well your organisation is. We've done audits of the University of Oxford to say we're not as good as we think. Just to say two simple things. Do you register your trials? And do you publish your summary results within 12 months of the completion of that trial? But actually it takes a huge number of people if you create a commitment like we're going to eradicate publication and reporting bias. You need to work with more than one group. You have to have a plan and you have to have actions. So our key is to get this right and in the right structure and then from there say, right, who's going to action it? So the next five years of work is going to be about fixing the problem. No more research about here's the problem. Apart from in areas like veterinary medicine where you might say we still have to say the obvious. But we certainly don't need another cohort study that says here's cohort 28 to say there's a problem with outcome switching, do we? We need to think about how do we fix it. How do we, and, and it will take us time. So one of the things we are doing is we're not going away. We're re-auditing the, the journals until they fix it. And we'll keep trying to make it their life a nightmare. So of these, you might think when you go online, you think, okay, I'm really interested in this. Regulatory decisions. You might be in policy. You might be in clinical patient benefit. You might be in shared decision making. But what are the commitments? Is there something missing? And then once we've set them out, the key question is, what actions do we need to take? And it, it, it keeps coming back because when you're in this game of trying to in introduce actions, this was last week. Common Select Committee, Research Integrity Inquiry launched. So when you're in the job of fixing things, you do things like submit responses to this and say this is how we should go about fixing it. Uh, my response said there are two ways of looking at this problem. You could say well there are people who are massive fraudsters, the number of them is small and their actual impact is limited. Whereas if you consider the questionable research practices like not publishing results, the impact of that is huge. And we're likely to fix the former because it looks bigger and it's more in interesting news. But actually, we, we need to definitely have a strategy around the latter. Anybody we do, we record, put the themes up. People, whoever responds to us, about 100 people have responded. Be careful if you do because then we start quoting you. And that's really helpful. And that's how you do it. You give us your feedback. And it'd be really helpful if you wanted to say something or respond because it's really helpful in our feedback. And what we're trying to do then is, um, we were going to do that. We are going to publish a final version of this where everybody who's contributed will 
be a part of the team and organisation and people who are say I'm an author and we will do that. Um, in Evidence Live 27 is we're going to be moving to a focus of the action plan. What does it mean if we've got the commitment? How, what are the fixes and who are the groups of people who want to talk to each other who might say I'm really interested in working on this or that problem. How do I go about it? Who do I talk to? Because it's a, it's fixing it is a lot harder than I first realised. Providing solutions is, I tend to think of it in five year, sort of, take me five years to fix something of like this, whereas I can do another paper about the problem in the next three months. All right, thank you very much. <laughs>